Christmas. Here we are on Christmas Eve Eve. We're uh, counting it down at our house. I'm sure that you are at your house. We have, I don't know, I think we have several different countdowns going on in different rooms. We have a snowman that holds a blackboard that you erase each day and go down, you know, 23, 24. We're now at two. We have an owl that holds a thing that counts it down. It is a season where we are counting down. It does. I really appreciate, Mike, how you opened us up. It, it is a, a waiting period. It is a um, period where we are counting down, uh, not to the first advent, but to the second advent, which is a wonderful thing that we look forward to. Please open your uh, scriptures to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to look again at the verses that we looked at last week, but look at them with uh, a new eyes, a new, a new slant. I'm sure you've all uh, heard the analogy about the six blind men and the elephant. The six blind men come up to an elephant and then one of them touches his belly and, and thinks it's a wall. Another of the blind men grabs its ear and thinks it's a fan. A third blind man touches the tail and thinks he's holding on to a rope and so on and so forth. The trunk is a snake. The tusk is a spear. The leg a tree. Each blind man is trying desperately to describe what they do not see. The story is sometimes used to describe our our inability to to understand God. We're all blind, groping at understanding who this God is. This invisible, this transcendent, this mysterious God. We're desperately trying to describe him, that which we do not see. Yet there are two flaws to this analogy that come up very early on in the book of Hebrews. In the first two verses, as a matter of fact, these first two verses explode this thought that we cannot know our God. The first analogy, first, the analogy never considers the paradigm shattering question, what if the elephant speaks? What if the elephant talks? What if he, he begins speaking and, and telling the blind men that wall-like structure that you're holding on to, that's actually my, my side, and that, that rope that you think you're holding on to, that's actually my tail. And that trunk that you think is a snake, no, that's actually my nose. That's my trunk. What if the elephant described himself? What if the elephant spoke? That's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews is saying in the very first verse. Look with me. He comes out right from the get-go and says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What our author is saying is that we can know God because God spoke. And my... It's gone. So you're going to have to go forward for me. God spoke. He is not silent. He is not passive like the elephant. God describes himself. 
That's what God is doing all along, telling us who he is. At many times, the, Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrew says, at many times, starting way back at the beginning in Genesis, he's telling us who he is, and throughout time, until as, as our dear brother told us, 400 years before he came, he stopped telling us. That pregnant pause. He was speaking. And he spoke to us in various ways. Like through the prophets, it says. But in other various ways, too. He spoke to us through dreams and visions. He spoke to his people, telling them who he is. Through people and objects. Through rituals and rites. Through stories and themes. Through institutions, through images. He was, in the Old Testament, speaking constantly about who he is. Now, we don't have time today to go into all these various ways that he he described himself. But I do this morning want to focus on three of them. Three ways that God spoke and described himself to us. And the first one is through an object. And we find in Numbers 21. You can turn there if you like, or I'm going to tell you about that object in a moment. There in Numbers, God spoke and described himself as our healer. That's the first way he describes himself, as our healer. At that point in redemptive history, God's people have been freed from slavery in Egypt and they're wandering around the Sinai Desert. The people begin to complain because of the struggle that they're having in the wilderness to find food, to find water. But God has already provided water through the rock. God has already provided food through the manna day by day. Yet as they travel, the complaining begins to increase and increase till it gets to a point where they stop and they accuse God. The people accuse God of trying to kill them. This is what they say. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die here in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable manna. So, God judges their rebellion. God sends poisonous snakes. And people begin to die. You see, there are consequences to rebelling against a holy and perfect and just God. There are consequences. The people cry out for mercy and almost instantly God hears them. And he provides a way out, a way to live, a way to be healed. He tells Moses to fashion a bronze snake, put it on a pole and raise that pole up. And he tells them, if anybody, anybody, just looks, trusts what I say, and looks at that bronze snake, they'll be healed. They'll be saved. Anyone who looks will not die. Anyone who listens to God and trusts him enough to just turn their head and look, will not die but live. And God, through that object that we know as the caduceus, that snake on a pole, is describing himself as our healer. In essence, he was saying, I am the healer 
of that slow-acting poison that each one of us has in our veins called sin. You see, we, the human, collective human race, are sin-infected. We are sin-sick. We have a slow-acting poison in our veins that we call sin. Scripture tells us in Psalm 51.5 that we are sinful from birth, even from the time our mother conceived us in her womb, from the very beginning. Isaiah 53 describes it as sheep who have gone astray, who have turned to their own way. You see, that's what the people in the people of God in the wilderness were doing. They were turning to their own way. That's what rebellion looks like. That's what sin looks like, doing your own thing. And sin acts like a poison to us spiritually. And we die unless something is done about it. And God is saying through the object of that caduceus, look to me for healing. He's describing himself as our healer. He is speaking and saying, I am your healer. Secondly, God spoke to us in another way, describing himself as our conqueror. He describes himself as our conqueror. This is shown in in many ways, in various ways throughout Scripture, but one of the clearest ways is through the person of Joshua. Through the person of Joshua. Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. He had come out of Egypt. He was a slave in Egypt, and he had come out with with the exodus. He was with him, with Moses, at the foot of Sinai. He was the first one to greet Moses after coming down after 40 days. He was one of the two spies that came out of the promised land when they went in to look at the promised land and, and, and map it out and see if they could take, take the promised land. He was one of only two who said, yes, we can do it. Yes, I have faith that God will give us this land. And when they returned there 40 years later, he was there to take the mantle, to take the, the leadership mantle of God's people. And he took them into the promised land. He led them in battle to secure their land's borders. Joshua waged war on God's enemies and won. And through the person of Joshua, God is describing himself, God is speaking, God is showing us that he is our conqueror. You see, scripture tells us that we have three enemies. The enemy of sin, the enemy of Satan, and the enemy of death. And on our own, by ourselves, we are literally helpless against each and every one of them. We are literally helpless. We cannot even begin to defeat Satan on our own. He is way too quick, way too clever, way too powerful. We cannot possibly think that we can take him on ourselves. It literally is a David versus a Goliath in the true sense of the word. However much we think we can, we can't defeat our second enemy either, sin. We think we can. That's, that's one of the, the major 
flaws that we have that's kind of hardwired in us is that we think we can actually defeat sin in our life. We think that we can, we can somehow, through, through obeying enough or being good enough or nice enough or stuffing the, 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 the sin down far enough that we can defeat it. Or by putting on a really shiny veneer on the outside. But as Paul in Romans 8 writes, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Our minds are set on what the flesh desires. That's how we're hardwired. The sinful man is hostile to God, Paul goes on to say. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so, he says in his word. The mind of a sinful man is death. That brings us to the third enemy, death. So much of our culture's energy goes into staving death off, doesn't it? I mean, that, that's, that's what we're constantly doing, pushing that moment back in our life as much as we can. We do it through products and, and plastic surgeries and, and healthy lifestyles on the outside to make our outside, the death, not look, not, not look like it's coming. And we do pharmaceuticals and surgeries on the inside to stave off death. But the death rate has never changed. Never. It's one for one. It's the beginning of time. The fountain of youth does not exist. Against death we are helpless. And through Joshua, God speaks and says, I will be your conqueror. I will bring you into the promised land. I'm the one who will secure a real resting place for you. He is our conqueror. That's what God is saying. That's how he's describing himself. The third way that God describes himself was as our substitute. He describes himself as our substitute. Although God spoke and showed himself as our substitute in many ways, again, one of the clearest in Scripture is found in Exodus chapter 12. And that is through the Passover lamb. It's one of the clearest, clearest ways that he shows us through that ritual. God's people were enslaved in Egypt and God had sent and commissioned Moses to free him and he goes and stands before the, the most powerful man at that time in the world and says, let my people go. And you know the story. Pharaoh hardens his own heart and says no. And God sends the plagues, plagues of frogs and of locusts and of hail of fire and, and boils and darkness. I mean, they get progressively heavy and serious. And finally, the last of the plagues is the plague of death, the firstborn in every family, Egyptian and Jewish, will die. They will die. 
unless you take a perfect lamb, spotless lamb, and you kill it, and you cut its neck, you drain the blood, and you show that you had killed that lamb by spreading it on the entryway of your house. The only way there will be life is if something dies. The only way for the firstborn to live is if something else takes the penalty and dies. And God, through that sacrificial lamb, through that ritual, is saying, I will provide a substitute. I will provide a substitute. You see, long ago, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers. He revealed who he is. He describes what he's going to do. To a people who could not see him, God spoke. That's the first flaw in the elephant and the blind man. The second flaw where the analogy breaks down is to ask this. What if the blind men were suddenly given sight and they could see the elephant? They could see the elephant for what the elephant is. They wouldn't have to guess anymore. The elephant wouldn't have to speak, so to speak. Here's the elephant. Oh, I get it. I see it. They no longer have to just hear about him, but actually see. Brothers and sisters, that is what verse 2 is saying. Long ago, at many times, in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God became man. John Piper describes how wonderful this is, this transition from, from God speaking to us seeing him. He says, kids, suppose you and your mom get separated at the grocery store and you start to get scared and panicked and you don't know which way to go and you run from one end to the aisle you finally get to a place where you're, you're so scared that you're all feeling all alone that you just stop and you just start to cry. Then you see a, a shadow at the end of the aisle that looks like your mom's shadow. And it makes you happy. It makes you stop crying. You feel hope. But which is better? The happiness of seeing the shadow or of the joy of seeing her turn the corner and seeing her face to face? That's what Christmas is. Christmas is the replacement of shadows with the real thing. God spoke about himself in types and shadow, but Christmas is when we celebrate shadow becoming substance, invisible becoming visible, God becoming man. In the person of Jesus Christ, Hebrews goes on in a few words later, he, 
writes this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. When you hear Jesus speak, you're hearing God speak. When you see how Jesus acts and reacts, you're seeing how God acts and reacts. Because Jesus is God made visible. That's what the Apostle John is saying in his first epistle. It opens this way. He says, that which was from the beginning. He's describing God. And then he says, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we have testified to it. God became man in that little baby that we look at in the manger this season. And he would grow up to heal our sin sickness. One day when he was talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, he said about himself, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up and everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. He was saying, just as people trusted God and turned their neck and looked up at that bronze snake and were healed, so If you turn your head and look at me and trust that I paid for your sin, you will be healed. Anyone who trusts in Jesus' life, his completed work, his death, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection, the truth that he did conquer death, they too will be healed. The venom of sin will be extracted from your veins. God became human to offer himself as the antivenom. Secondly, at Christmas we celebrate that God just did not speak, but he came to be our conqueror. Not of a land, but of our greatest enemy, death. A few years ago, a 14-foot bronze crucifix was stolen from a cemetery outside Little Rock, Arkansas. It had stood at the entrance to that cemetery for more than 15 years. It was put up there in 1930, so more than 50 years, at a price of $10,000 back then, in 1930. The thieves cut it off at its base and hauled it off to be sold as scrap. The thieves figured that 900-pound bronze cross would bring them about $450. When in fact, that cross was worth over $150,000. They obviously didn't realize the value of the cross. The image of the cross, the one behind me, at one time communicated disgrace, guilt, shame, punishment, death, much like our electric chair does today. But today it represents victory, doesn't it? 
Jesus' conquest over death in one image. Many people today undervalue this cross. They wear it around their neck as jewelry. There's nothing wrong with that. They tattoo it on their skin. They hang it in their houses, not realizing that it represents conquest, victory over our biggest enemy. Allowing each person who has put their trust in Jesus to say those words that Paul penned to the Corinthian church, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. Why? Because he gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you can say if you put your faith in Christ. Your greatest enemy, that one that you, we all push off, is gone. And lastly, at Christmas, we celebrate that God just did not speak but he put on our skin and one day would grow up to be our substitute. One of my heroes, and some of you here have heard me speak of him, one of my heroes is a Catholic priest who was born in the 1800s. His name is Father Damien. He was known as an unknown priest in 1873 when he went to live at a leper colony in Hawaii named Kalawaho. For 16 years, he lived there. He loved them. He served those lepers. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds. He embraced them when no one else would touch them or come near them. He preached to their hearts that would otherwise have been left alone. He organized schools and bands and choirs for that colony. He built homes so that the lepers would have shelter. He himself built over, constructed over 200 coffins, 2,000 coffins, excuse me, so that they would die with dignity, be buried with dignity, not just in a pauper's grave. Slowly it was said, Kalawahu became a place where people came to live rather than die. Father Damien was not careful about keeping his distance either. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his fingers in the same poi bowl and ate with them. He shared his pipe without cleaning it. He didn't always wash his hands after he bandaged their wounds. He got close. For this, the people of that leper colony loved him. Then one day he stood up and he began his sermon this way. We lepers... He had finally contracted leprosy. At that moment, he wasn't just helping them. He was one of them. From that day forward, he wasn't just on the island. He was in their skin. First, he had chosen to live as they lived. 
now he would die as they died. At Christmas, we celebrate God becoming man, God putting on our skin. Jesus willingly came to the leper colony called Earth. He did not keep a safe distance, did he? He dipped his hands in our poi bowl. He touched the untouchable. He embraced the unembraceable. And on the cross, he willingly died our deadly disease. He died in our place. He substituted himself for us. Like the lamb of the Passover, for someone to live, someone has to die. God spoke and said he would provide a substitute. He did. Himself. That's why we say, Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And thank you. Thank you for coming. For not keeping a safe distance from us. In Jesus' name, amen.